It's a little early in the morning, but Steve Gibson is here. He's back, got a little bit of a cold, but we're going to talk about two major exploits. You've probably read about them in the headlines, Freak and Rowhammer. We'll also look at Microsoft's Patch Tuesday update and a lot more. Security Now is next. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 498, recorded March 12th, 2015. Freak and Rowhammer. Security Now is brought to you by Nitro. Nitro accelerates the way businesses create, prepare, and sign PDF files. Anytime, anywhere, saving you and your business time. To learn more and try it free for 14 days, visit gonitro.com slash twit. That's gonitro.com slash twit. And by Carbonite. For hands-on business owners, Carbonite makes data backups hands-free. Carbonite's automatic cloud backup provides you with round-the-clock protection at work and at home. Visit Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW for two free bonus months. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you and your loved ones online. In this case, uh, a very early edition. Uh, hey, Steve Gibson. Hey, Liv. Great to be with you. Steve, a little uh, bit later than usual in the week, but but here nonetheless. You almost made it 500 shows without getting sick. Oh, oh. <laughs> Steve never gets sick, and I guess you got a bad. It sounds like a cold. And it's funny. I, I realized I'd sort of forgotten how. <laughs> how to be sick. You yeah, probably don't have any, I mean, uh, like, any cold medicines in the house or anything. <laughs> no. There's sort of a protocol, like, okay, now I do this and this. It's like I was, like, rediscovering. It's like, okay, well, that's interesting. <laughs> So uh, we missed our Wednesday. And by the way, uh, even though we made a great pains, put it on the front page of the website, I tweeted it, you tweeted it. Still, people said, where's my security now? People love the show. And so I'm glad to say, even though it's late, you will get a security now this week. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, some tweets I saw said, well, there goes my Wednesday commute. I know. Like, people were okay, hooked. Well, you know, how about Friday? You, 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 you can wrap up the week with a security now. So and as it, as it turns out, the fact that you were able to run MacBreak Weekly long on this particular Tuesday was fabulous because you had a really great panel. And, you know, it was a, it was a it marathon. Worked it, was a well. it worked out well. It worked out well. We did a three-hour, which we couldn't have done. So, uh, yeah, no, it, it was actually uh, serendipitous. However, so here this, we are. This was, this was set to be... A Q and A, mm -hmm. but two, um, two really important and interesting things happened that just can't be covered briefly or shouldn't be, uh, and that is something called Freak, um, which is an acronym for something. It doesn't really matter what, um, and Rowhammer, which is um, a surprising, recently surfaced weakness in DRAM, hmm. which I guess I would characterize Rowhammer as um, not really a side channel attack, but if you really, 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 really want to exploit a system and have no other means, this might work. So, um, That's like the kind of thing the it, NSA really likes. 
Yeah, I was going to say exactly <laughs> that because there it is. It is specific. the The details are specific to the processors and chips, and and so it's the kind of thing where the NSA might say, "Oh, look, he's got one of those laptops." So let's hammer him. So anyway, so that's uh, so today's um, podcast will cover those two things in detail, and then we'll do the news of the week first. Um, so I think everyone's going to be satisfied with our slightly delayed podcast. Oh, sounds excellent um, to me. We'll, we'll talk about Patch Tuesday, which happened. Um, the news that the CIA has been dogging Apple's encryption since. 2007, since before the iPhone, and has been putting a lot of pressure against, uh, you know, like into cracking the iPhone. Yeah, we didn't um, we didn't talk about it on Mac Break Weekly because I thought, oh, we'll talk about this on Security yes. Now. It's really better for Security Now since it's you know a security yeah. issue. And um, so, we, and then some odds and ends about routers and redirection. I did want to check in with you about the Apple Watch, which I had a few comments about. And then we're going to plow into these really two big security stories uh, deep in technology. So this is great. great. We're, we're, we're loaded for bear, baby. <laughs> Even though it's 8 in the morning where we are, uh, I hope you have, back east, they're thrilled. Hey, there's a show uh, my time. Yeah, I'm awake. Yeah. Uh, our show today actually brought to you by a relatively uh, new sponsor to the network, and I'm really glad to have them. And it's a perfect uh, show, Security Now, for this, because we've talked on and on about how dangerous yeah. Adobe's Acrobat and Reader are. Like nothing more dangerous. Uh, and, 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 you know, oh. I think that both Apple and Microsoft respond. You know, Windows 8 now has a PDF reader in it. Apple has a PDF reader in it. But what you don't get is the PDF creator. And uh, and that can can be very expensive. We've got one that I prefer. I mean, this is the best way not only to read PDFs, but it's it's a replacement for uh, Acrobat, and it, it, great for individuals or large enterprises. I'm talking Nitro, N I T R O Nitro, gives you everything you need to easily view, create. That's the that's the important part, the Acrobat part. Prepare. And sign PDF files. I've been doing a lot of that lately. And it's so nice to be able to just stamp your signature on this. One of the things Nitro does that's great is, you know, getting your signature in the first time is tough. You can write it. This is the best way, I think, to do it. Sign a card and then hold it up to your computer's camera and Nitro will turn it into a signature. They also have a signature font you can use if you're, if you're lazy, you just want to type your name. And once it's in the library, boom, you stamp your initials, your, your name uh, on any PDF file. And it's got a great, clean UI, very simple deployment options, the best customer service around. Go ahead and try to get customer service from those other guys. You can easily connect and host documents in the Nitro Cloud, which I love. That means you can securely complete transactions with legally binding e-signatures. In business, this is the way to go. It, re it completely replaces the ridiculous fax machine with a much more secure solution. Print to PDF from any application using the Nitro Pro Virtual Printer Driver. Simple one-click PDF conversions to any MS Office format and back again. Complete round-tripping. That's hard to do, and it's great to have. Add text anywhere on a PDF document, even if it doesn't have interactive fields. Intuitive editing tools will let you manipulate text. Change fonts. Change fonts in a PDF. Imagine that. Customize layouts and more. 
The Nitro Pro UI looks uh, so much like the Microsoft Office. It's got the ribbon and everything that you're really going to feel right at home with it right away. You can transform any scanned document or image into a searchable, editable PDF because it has OCR built in, optical character recognition built in. You get the idea. This is a pro tool with everything you need. And uh, no wonder half a million businesses and, and about half of the Fortune 500 use Nitro Pro over other solutions. Go Nitro, G-O-N-I-T-R-O dot com slash twit. Go Nitro dot com slash twit to learn more about Nitro mm -hmm. and all their document solutions, including the Nitro Cloud, which is really sweet. And as a special offer, try Nitro free for 14 days. You don't need a credit card. You don't need anything. Just your goodwill. <laughs> try free for two weeks. Go nitro.com slash twit, and we thank them so much for their support of Security Now and for their support of a secure PDF experience. <laughs> yes. PDFs are great. You know, I, I get frustrated when I have to do faxes. Uh, I had to do some uh, correspondence with a title company, and they don't – They had to, you had to fax it to them. And I wanted to say, that is not a secure solution. Why are you still doing this? Right. But it's just old fashioned, I guess. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm. I've I've been a long term, long time uh, owner of um, Acrobat, which is you know the Adobe yeah. original solution, and it's just it's incredibly expensive, <laughs> and know. you know, and, and it's machine locked. <laughs> so it, so so if, if if a machine like the motherboard dies on a machine oh, that's got it installed, that? oh my you've lo you've lost like nine hundred dollars oh, or something. I hate it when they yeah, so that that frustrates the heck out of me. Oh well. Yeah, I, I think that's old school policy. Yeah, that's just is. you know, it's not going it to survive yeah. for yeah. for much longer. So we had a, a patch Tuesday. Last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. Um, not anything really significant, although Microsoft did fix in this Patch Tuesday um, one of the one of the problems um, with this freak exploit. Uh, got fixed on Tuesday, on March 9th. So that was good. Yeah. Um, so there were 14 bundles, five were critical, and, and all of those all of those were remote code um, execution vulnerabilities, and the remaining nine they just flagged as important. Um, there was the standard cumulative security update for IE, which, you know, it's the, the standard monthly update. Um and you know where and with the boilerplate from from uh, Microsoft saying the most secure of the vulnerabilities could allow remote code execution if a user views a specially crafted web page using IE. So you know go to a site and get owned. So that's been fixed. The second one was a VB scripting problem, and I got a kind of a kick out of this because they said this is Microsoft saying resolves a vulnerability in the VB script scripting engine. In Microsoft Windows, the vulnerability could allow remote code execution if a user visits a specially crafted website which uses VBScript. And I thought, okay, so nobody does that. <laughs> Who, you know, what website has VBScript? I don't Except know. Maybe, maybe something inside Microsoft. Or internet, no I bet, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, but, okay, yeah, right, in, 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 a, in, a, in a Windows-based company, right. but... You know why would you why would you in in this day and age not use JavaScript, which has become the industry standard for client side scripting? So this is Microsoft saying, "Well, we produced something a long time ago, and we've needed to keep it going." So 
uh, we fixed a vulnerability that you really don't care about because you're not using it. Did you see that um, uh, they made a uh, uh, break time to break up with IE8 website now? <laughs> I think oh it's my I God. think it's Microsoft. So it's, it's gone uh, from six to seven to eight. Yeah. So it's it says break up with Internet Explorer eight on your six year anniversary. So I guess IE eight is six years old, and wow. uh, it's pretty funny because they're having people uh, tweet, you know, their their little uh, breakup stories. I'm leaving you because at least a five of your action bars are not mine. <laughs> 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 I just I just love it. And then there's a little a little heart cursor that goes around. It's kind of I, maybe oh. their Valentine's Day. Uh, thing and then there's a button that says oh god no i'm not ready and, and you and you click that and it shows a video of internet explorer counted another problem and needs to close it's pretty funny um now this is by microsoft well the la they've done these before remember because they the of the insecurity let me just see if i press the dump button if it goes to firefox or uh or text a breakup to ie8 um, I just think this is very classy and not the sort of thing you typically see from staid old Microsoft. No, they did something cool for uh, IE6, remember, because they were really concerned about oh, people. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I don't – wait a minute. Here's a WTF button. Let's see what – break up with IE8. For whatever reason, IE8 recently increased in browser share. <laughs> <laughs> Join the intervention and stop supporting IE8. I, you know, it might be from it might be the Firefox. It's really not apparent who this is from. A public service lovingly crafted by humans. It might not be anybody. It might yeah. not be Microsoft. It just it just is. But I love it. It's well done. It's really well done. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't Stuxnet fixed again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. Whoops. Apparently. Uh, there was like a, a multi-year-old uh, patch that prevents that, that prevented the Stuxnet infection, oh, oh. and then a workaround was found. Oh, Lord. So you could you could still get your PC infected with the original Stuxnet nastyware. So yeah, that's that's again we've got there. There's just, the the big revelation of the last couple of years, and we'll talk about this in the next story about the CIA and Apple is. You know, we've lost our virginity um, in this industry. We couldn't, I mean, the, it used to be just the, the, the you know, we, we gave them different colors of hats, white hat and black hat and maybe gray hat sometimes, hackers. And we thought those were the people, the, the only adversary that we had. Come to find out that for, like, since the beginning, the, the, the U.S. three-letter initial uh, law enforcement and intelligence gathering agencies have been absolutely frantic and furious and unfortunately well-staffed and well-funded to be every bit as aggressive, if not more so, than actual bad guys. I mean, only recently we're seeing where this sort of use of malware is an actual profit center, for example, with, with the new file encryption technology that, you know, really does induce people to pay the ransom. Pre previous to that, viruses, as annoying as they were, they were annoying. You know, they, they got into your system and sort of mucked things up. But it, it, it was always sort of, well, okay, why? They, they must just be doing it because they can. Well, what we know is that law enforcement 
and intelligence gathering are doing it because they feel really put upon, really endangered by the growing use of encryption. And it was foreseeable that this that encryption would grow. And in fact, we'll be talking about in this in this freak attack, it is it is that that had people freaked out um late last week and early this week, um, and is still a problem. It is entirely because of the NSA's paranoia over cryptography that this freak attack is possible. And we'll talk about the the export grade ciphers, which which the U.S. government enforced on Oy. the um, the industry in its early days, yeah. because they want they wanted to weaken crypto only enough that they that it was strong enough to protect people, kind of in general, but weak enough that they could crack it. And what it was funny because by by na- by calling strong crypto a munition, which is like what? Uh, but but now I understand that maybe better now than I did before. Um, by calling it a munition, by categorizing it that way, you could restrict its export. And what that meant was that within the U.S., we could use <laughs> these so-called munitions peacefully with each other to get strong encryption. But that meant automatically that the encryption strength had to be downgraded for any connections leaving the U.S. And that meant that international communications could be cracked. So that was the, that, that was the, the, the rationale behind this notion of encryption is a munition. Is this like we, we don't allow their export, so we're going to call them a munition. You can't make a connection outside the country with strong crypto. And so that also tells us that the NSA has been tapping the net also for a long time because that's what that's the other part of, of using crackable crypto is sucking in all the data so that you can decide what you want to crack. So in that vein, um, more Snowden documents have come to light, um, published this time or by uh, I, I, I should say again by the Intercept because we covered the the release of Snowden documents from the Intercept just recently. Um, the Intercept the is art- uh, is that thing that Pierre Omidar started. He hired Glenn, Glenn Greenwald right. away and uh, right. created this uh, I don't know what it is for profit journalistic enterprise called the Intercept. Yeah, well, someone's being paid by the word. Well, because and also a lot of people left the intercept, or at least some people left, unhappy with the way it was being run. I think. Boy, is it really I, long? It is. It is <laughs> redundant and long. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you get teases up at the front, and then it's like, well, well, well and then halfway down, they kind of come back to that and add a little embellishment. I mean, it's like classic. How can we bloat this this story? To like to, to the largest size possible. I was, I mean, and I'm very tolerant of that. Normally, I don't notice that, but this was just like, oh, come on. So when I was putting things together, I just, you know, I was like, okay, well, I already read that earlier, and oh, I read that earlier, and so you know, tell us something you haven't already said I, I, in the I first. Some of the graph. best editors have left, is what the problem wow. is. So here's what we know, um, and there's a lesson in this 
for our listeners that you and I have spoken of often. Um, and it's a little creepy. Um, and that is, we have just discussed this before in the context of HDMI and DVD um, within the life of this podcast. And that is when we were talking about DVD encryption in the early days, it was, it was obvious really that, a, that if your household, your, I guess we don't even have them anymore, but, <laughs> but if, your, if your entertainment system's DVD player had the ability to decrypt an encrypted DVD that you had stuck in it, and by definition, it has to have the ability to decrypt it, then right there sitting on the shelf is a box vulnerable to reverse engineering. And if you reverse engineer it, then you know how to decrypt DVDs too. That is the, the, the Achilles heel in this system was it absolutely depended upon a keeping a secret. The DVD industry, and, and boy, talk about a widespread secret that they were keeping. Um, it's no surprise that they couldn't. But if something in your, that you have access to must withstand divulging its own secrets, then it's inherently insecure, which, and which not to say, you know, I mean, in the, in the absolute sense, sitting there in front of you is something that knows how to decrypt what you want to know how to decrypt. There are ways to ask it what it knows. So, um, essentially... The CIA, uh, these, these Snowden documents show us through a series of slides that the CIA has for, what would it be, um, eight years been, been actively financing um, lots of Lockheed Martin employees who's like a large, uh, 80% of, Lock, of Martin Lockheed's business is is government contracts. And so they subcontract out a lot of this stuff. So they've been financing continuous cracking efforts uh, against the iPhone. There's an annual meeting or meetup called the Jamboree, which, um, which they have in order to pull all the various components together. And then they give each other slideshow presentations of, you know, the capabilities that they have managed to develop since the last jamboree um, a year ago. So the researchers have, have claimed over the course of these years, and some of this, like as is the case, we have to remember with the Snowden documents, is old news. So things like going to the iPhone 6 and the newer iOSs, we know Apple has been proactively, aggressively working to thwart, if not the CIA, then the hackers. Because it is also a danger to Apple's users if the, uh, the iPhone gets, gets rooted and, and, and hacked, you know, jailbroken and malicious in there. Apple wants to protect its users. So in the process, it's protecting them also from the CIA eavesdropping, against which you know, law enforcement wants to push back strongly. So 
the researchers claim to have modified Apple's Xcode development platform so that any application built with it will, will built with Xcode, which is like that's how you build right. applications, will automatically include backdoors and infected apps can somehow invite or entice, entice was the word in, in the document. It's like, what? <laughs> what? Can entice other apps to join in. <laughs> okay. Um, also, another f- target and, I mean, like a threat. It's, it's, it's a little unnerving to hear stuff that we revere for security being labeled a threat by law enforcement. But the TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, um, has long has long been a target of this group, mm-hmm. and I have long wondered why it never really took off. And I have to wonder, sort of in a Machiavellian way, if on some level all of these agencies aren't really working not to have a secure platform created because it would make their job so much harder. So... Yeah, you know, we got TPM years ago. BitLocker can lock to it, but, uh, you know, and and there are some OSs that boot sort of through it. But, boy, it sure has never met its its potential. So, anyway, they don't like it. They don't like anything that is going to keep them from getting the information they want. Um, So, quoting from... Um, a, P, a small P, a small piece of this Intercept article. They said the Snowden documents do not address how successful the targeting of Apple's encryption mechanisms have been, nor do they provide any detail about the specific use of such exploits by U.S. intelligence. But they do shed light on an ongoing campaign aimed at defeating Apple's efforts to secure its products, and in turn its customers' private data. In the top secret documents, ranging from 2010 through 2012, so again, they are a bit dated, the researchers appear particularly intent on extracting encryption keys that prevent unauthorized access to data stored and firmware run on Apple products. In an abstract of a 2011 presentation at the Jamboree, the researchers noted that the intelligence community is highly dependent on a very small number of security flaws, many of which are public. In other words, in other words they're using the same hacks that hackers are to jailbreak phones. They have no, you know, I mean, that, that, that's been the only means that the CIA, NSA, FBI, and so forth had of cracking an iPhone was... The, the, all, this basically, the, 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 the public hackers are doing the work for um, the intelligence firms um, or agencies. Um, however, in this abstract, after explaining that uh, um, the, the intelligence community is highly dependent on a very small number of security flaws, many of which are public and which Apple eventually patches, then they promised that their presentation could provide the intelligence community with a, quote, method to non-invasively extract encryption keys used on Apple devices. 
another presentation focused on physically extracting the key from Apple hardware. In other words, the first is a, a side channel attack of some sort, maybe using EMF emissions or power consumption. And actually elsewhere in this document, those were specifically mentioned. And this physical extraction of the key, um, back in the early days of chip um, fabrication, that was known as popping the top. You pop the top <laughs> on the chip and get out your, your high-resolution electron microscope or just a, just a very good microscope, and there in front of you are all of the traces that a chip designer can reverse engineer the chip's circuitry from. I mean, and so this brings us full circle to the problem that Apple faces, and that is just as with a DVD or an HDMI screen, which again, HDMI, of course, is, is encrypted transit um, video. In those cases, the, the consumer is seeing the unencrypted contents, the unencrypted data, um, because it's been decrypted for them by something in their living room. Similarly, anyone holding, a, like booting an iPhone and installing software is holding the device that is able to decrypt that encrypted stuff. And so there, there is a, there is a I, I would argue, a, a limit to what Apple is able to do. I continue to believe all the evidence is that even if Apple didn't know about this, and maybe they didn't, so maybe they did have some clue that this was going on, they've been taking all the measures you could ask to increase the security of their device in order to, <coughs> excuse me, in order to um, raise the bar as high as possible um, in order to, to, to thwart this. But we should remember that we're holding the decryption device in our hand. All right. I wonder, <clears throat> you know, this is what's 18 months in now. It was June of... Uh, 2013 that the Snowden leaks began, right? I mean, we're well into the leaks. And maybe yeah. we're getting to the bottom of the barrel here. And the only reason I say <laughs> that is uh, the Jamalto story where uh, uh, Snowden claimed or the papers right. claimed, I think it was Snowden, wasn't it? That uh, and Yes, and, and that was the our previous mention just a few weeks right. ago of The Intercept. It was another story in, in The Intercept. So that the, 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 this story claimed that the uh, NSA had hacked the keys of this SIM card manufacturer. Jamalto makes billions of SIM cards a year. They're in most of the uh, <laughs> yeah. phones in the U.S. But Jamalto then did an audit. Uh, now, whether this is to be trusted or not, I don't know. But they did an audit and they said, yeah, you know, we saw some NSA-style attacks. They never got yep. past our office systems. Our keys are intact and the systems were not uh, – the integrity of the uh, systems that encrypt the uh, SIM cards was never at risk. Now, maybe Jamal – you know, I don't know who to believe here. But I'm wondering if we're starting to get to the point in these papers where this is stuff – it's a little more speculative. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And, you know, certainly they th – why would they hold the best stuff to yeah. like a year and a half yeah, I mean, later? this is good stuff. This is juicy. Well, I'll give you an example, the Xcode thing. Now, that makes sense 
if you if you really want to compromise a system, compromise the development tool that's used by oh. everybody. But you get yep. Xcode from Apple. And right. you, you would be a strange developer that would get Xcode from some third-party third source. So right. the NSA or the CIA in this case would have to – I think this was this is a barrier that's pretty high. Get into Apple's servers, modify Xcode in such a way that nobody noticed. I just don't think this is credible. Or, or plant an Xcode change in a specific developer's machine. That you could access- do. You yes. know, retroactively, but on the other hand, Xcode uh, is patched all the time, and uh, right. I mean, so this is why when you to... when you get GCC or other open source compiling tools, you always get an MD5 hash, and you're supposed to compare the two. Right. There are automated tools that will do that and protect you from uh, hacked code. But if you're getting it, for, okay, so it'd have to be ex, it'd have to be post facto, and after you downloaded it, I, th- I think yeah, because um, nowhere in this paper did they talk about how they. How how they infected developers with the infected Xcode? Yeah. They said we've got an Xcode that is like an auto <laughs> an auto backdoor installer, yeah. um, and presumably they were then they, they were then um, solving that problem by installing these in specific developers' uh, environments, which makes it much less of a an, <laughs> an attack. I mean, it's a very specific right. uh, attack. Right. Um, I I don't. I'm not saying. Uh, I mean, certainly these need to be paid yeah, attention to. And as I said last know. week, the, no one is any more questioning the validity of these documents. There's just too many. There's too much detail. That these aren't made up. Snowden didn't right. write this in, in his cabin in the woods. Uh, yeah. I mean. You know. Yeah. The the, the 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 slides are always yeah. rather sobering because yeah. it's like, wow, there's a vocabulary for this. There, the, the, there's there's this huge machine that is rumbling forward right. working on on taking privacy away that's the biggest takeaway is not whether they've had success in one area or the other whether they're managing to crack apple or not but just that they're continu- at least until recently continually attempting this right uh, and that's but right. if you think about it, if you're law enforcement tpm all any form of encryption any form of security is if you're trying to invest a criminal uh, investigate a criminal going to thwart you so of course it's yeah. seen as an enemy in that regard, right? I think they also value, you know, and this is the weird kind of uh, schizophrenic nature of this. They also yes. value it, and they're off, always talking about certain. All these other uh, agencies are always talking about how important it is to encrypt and protect your privacy. President Obama said, "Yeah, everybody should have encryption." So it's this weird dichotomy. As long as we can see into it. Well, I yeah. don't even know if they say that. As long as we can see into the criminals' encryption, I think is the right. subtext, right? As a as a good and honest citizen, you should have the right to privacy. But but uh, you cross that line, we want to be able to see what you're up to. Yeah, you can't fault them for that. Uh, no, but you can't fault us for for trying to thwart it either. Yeah, not everybody who encrypts is is a criminal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, I got a tweet from a James Bennett Saxon who was following up on our conversation about router firmware and how at this point. You you really just can't trust the firmware on especially a low-end commodity um, router. And so he tweeted uh, at SGGRC, I have Fios with Verizon-supplied router. Can I wipe their scary firmware? Now, I, I like this because it raised a really good um, point, which is there are situations you're going to be in where you can't replace the firmware 
for whatever reason, on the router that you're stuck with. You know, I'm sure that Verizon's random router firmware in their for their FIOS offering is not going to accept a Linux build um, downloaded into it. So what I wanted to remind people is that routers are stackable. And if you, for whatever reason, have cause to mistrust your actual border router, like in this case, the Verizon supplied router that interfaces to his fiber optics externally or FIO system, um, there's nothing to prevent you from connecting that router only to another router and th that you do trust. And then that router, that second router, the, inter the internal router becomes the one that supplies your internal network. Um, they stack very nicely. Uh, no downside at all. Some additional features, actually, when you think about, like, um, having m maybe a less trusted network and a more trusted network. Um, so I wanted to remind people that uh, if they're frustrated with the inability to change their firmware, you can just install a router inside that one that you do trust. Um, with running whatever firmware oh, that's a good uh, idea. That, yeah. that you choose. That's yeah. where you'd put your Astaro gateway. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I got a tweet. Um, I, I was talking about my blogs, and I don't remember the context of that, but in on the podcast recently, I mentioned uh, that I have two blogs at WordPress. Um, you know, steve.grc.com is my personal one. And blog.grc.com is, is the corporate G, uh, Gibson Research blog. And I started getting tweets from people that said, uh, that doesn't work. I'm getting uh, SSL errors. Well, I fixed it. Um, and I, I had I, actually intended not, I had intended to leave it bad um, so th just for that purpose. So <laughs> I could, so show, the could tweet. show it. I could show the tweet, I guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but... I loved what this turned out to be, um, uh, and I mean, when I saw that, when I saw these these tweets begin to come in, it's like, huh? What? Huh? And so, <coughs> are you hosting so this, or is it a WordPress.com hosted blog? Exactly, ah. it is WordPress. I see. And the and what I'm using there there are two ways that I could use my own domain name to allow people to get to the blog. And one is by doing a so-called 301 redirect, where anyone who comes to um, blog.grc.com, that would go to my server, and my server would send, would respond to the browser with a, a 301 um, permanent redirect, meaning that this, this website is saying that to get the content for the domain you're asking about, blog.grc.com, go over here. And so then I would, I would redirect the browser to wordpress.com slash, and I think, I don't remember now what the username is, I think it's Agile Synapse, which was very briefly my first Twitter handle before I decided <laughs> that short, shorter is better. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't use Steve is, Gibson, you know. <laughs> oh, that was long gone. Oh, really? I, oh. <laughs> oh, Lord. And I feel sorry for Steve Gibson on, on Twitter. I'm constantly seeing him oh. replying to people saying, no, I'm not, not that me. Steve Gibson. Yeah. 
It's like, oh, okay, well, you, you're sorry about that. So the other Steve Gibson, we will buy back that handle if you want it. <laughs> if you don't want uh, it. Now, I love SGGRC. I yeah, think that's, it's short, that's established which is great, now. as you said. And, and short is what you want. Yeah. So the alternative solution is what's called a C-name record. It's always been in DNS, thanks to the brilliance of those guys. And it's, it's essentially, it's called an alias. And a C-name record says that, yes, um, uh, you found the DNS for this domain name, but that's an alias for another one. And so what, what, essentially what that does is it... It's at the. It, it's a DNS redirection rather than a browser protocol redirection, and that's how, up in the URL, when you're at steve.grc.com or blog.grc.com, you're looking th- that that domain name is still in the URL. So it didn't it didn't change to WordPress.com slash something yeah. you know down in down in in, in the directory, which a three hundred one would do, right? Yes, and so I pay WordPress some nominal fee, like five dollars or something annually, for their support of that because because they need to to essentially jump somebody down into their directory hierarchy to. Where my blog stands in that directory hierarchy, in other words, under the Agile Synapse subdirectory, to find the blog. So, so there is a, a tiny little bit of work on their part, which there would, and there would be none if I used a three hundred one redirect. But it looks more like it's a blog coming from me. What broke? What broke was when I was talking recently about strict transport security. Um, I've had that in place now for a long time, but in, in covering the updates to it, as we did a couple weeks ago, I saw two new parameters that could be added. Then one was include subdomains and the other was preload. And I thought, oh, and I thought, okay, let's see, are there any subdomains that I have? at GRC that should not be security enforced. And I thought, no, you know, media.grc, www.grc, GRC itself, they all, I want security enforcement on those. So I, I added include subdomains to the header which the GRC server emits. But there's a problem because... What that told all the browsers was that every subdomain of GRC needs to have HTTPS enforced. And blog.grc.com and steve.grc.com to to the browser look like subdomains. I mean, they are. So, So the C name comes along. And and it it transparently switches the browser to WordPress's domain, and the browser checks the certificate. It's looking for grc.com, and it gets wordpress.com, and it says, huh, and won't allow the connection. 
So a couple weeks ago, I broke this the C name redirect of those two subdomains that I, I mean they don't don't really have to be secured. They're they're often the WordPress boonies, um, but by doing that, I I um, and using strict transport security, I made it impossible uh, to get to those sites. So I went back in, simply removed include subdomains, and, and, and this was really perfect because um, after I did that. I went to my I went to a Firefox and tried again to go to steve.grc.com and it said no. Well it said no because it was holding on to, as it should, the most recent um, instance of the strict transport security header that it had received from GRC. So I thought, okay, that, that's good. So then I went to GRC, just brought up the home page, refreshed it for good measure. That I went back to steve.grc.com and it came right up. So, so the the strict transport security header was refreshed by an actual visit to GRC, losing the include subdomains wow. tag, and it all worked again. So someday, would you? <laughs> I would love an explainer on what all this junk means. <laughs> C name is canonical name. And I use it too, as you can see. This is a DNS record for Leoville.net, and so that was. I used to host it, but now I've moved it to uh, be hosted by With Known. So I had to do add a C name, yep, uh, there, and an A record to point to their uh, server IP address. I have no idea yep. what I'm doing here. I do this all by rote. So if you ever wanted to do a show <laughs> where you explain On what this configuring DNS, what, well, what does it mean? I mean, you know, the part of the problem is every domain name system has a. You know, this is hover.com, but all the all the uh, registrars have different systems. Your soft layer has a different system. So, um, but it all resolves down to something like this, this record. And I'd love to know what what that all stuff, all that means. It'd be a great, yeah. And actually, great that subject. that sort of human readable record is a proxy for the actual right, right. bind format record, which is way less. Oh, there's weird numbers. It's seventeen ninety nine and stuff. There's all sorts of weird <laughs> stuff in there. Yep, yeah. versions and dates and and yeah. and a- MX records, of course, ha- have a ha- have a priority on them, due to the some imagined future that actually didn't occur, where you would have different, you'd have like a hierarchy of mail servers, and they would have priorities in terms of of what someone wanting to send mail would try first and try second and try third and so forth. Right. And, or they could have MX the same priority and, uh, and then it would yeah. be round robin. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. It's crazy. Yes. And I know enough to, uh, uh, to cause real problems. So <laughs> I, I would it like is, to know more. <laughs> it's always nice when, when something or someone does that for you because it's yeah. like, oh, yeah. thank God. Well, I had – it's funny and, because I had, uh, t- I had conflicting hosting – Information in there, and it wasn't resolving. And I and uh, and uh, uh, Ben Wordmuller, who's great at uh, with known, gives great support. Said, "Well, do an NS lookup on that, and you'll see what's going on." And like it was <laughs> halftime, it was going to dotster.com, halftime hover.com. It was it was a very confused. But NS lookup is a very useful tool there too. Is yep. there a way to dump the bind uh, record? Like you could see what it says. Oh yeah, it really is. With um, NS th- in fact, like you can do NS lookup has some parameters. Yeah, um, uh, there is a. There is an any um, matching for NS lookup where you can say NS lookup. I don't know what the exact syntax is because I haven't used it for a long time. But you can say any. Normally, you're asking for the A record, and so it defaults right. to A. 
but it, but if you do NSLOOKUP and do slash question mark, you can get you can you can coerce it to give you you know its own help for how to, how to do that. And the any dump just says I want everything from the server. And actually, there's a story I didn't add to the notes today. I'll probably pick it up next week. And that is, I noticed that Cloudflare seems to be lobbying for eliminating the any option because boy is that an amplification attack if you if you because you can you you can do it over dns um a tiny query saying <laughs> give me all the dns records yes actually somebody in our chat room says and this might be why ns lookup is deprecated and you're supposed to use dig now and i just oh, use okay. digleoville.net boy you get some you get a lot of stuff <laughs> you get this this is this is actually uh much more useful yes yeah wow wow deep deep voodoo deep voodoo uh, someday so, will you please i want to show yeah okay. i trust you uh, you're the only person i trust to explain this stuff we'll make it we'll make it intelligible <laughs> someday um we have i think this and a couple more weeks and then it's over so i did want to encourage our faithful listeners to vote for security now <laughs> on the podcastawards.com Vote early, site. vote often. Vote, vote early, vote often. I, I came back the next day and I said, oh, it hasn't been 24 hours. I was like, okay, fine. So what do you mean? They, so they allow you to vote more than once, but... They tell you to. They say, you know, come back tomorrow. It's yeah. like, why? So we see your ads again? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't That's make why. any sense. Yeah, there you go. But like You but, just nailed it. So... <laughs> I, 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 I would like to, just love to win, I, and then I'll I'll leave everybody alone for the, for the next ten years. But it, it'd be fun to win. So, podcastawards.com, and thank you. I'm the, we're at the technology um, section at the very bottom. I saw a tweet from someone who said, "Dang, Steve, you and Tom Merritt are in the same category. Uh-oh. What do I do?" Uh oh. And and Tom responded very kindly. He said, "I voted for Steve." Oh, I think that so, means you're supposed to vote for him. I didn't. <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to win this sucker. <laughs> I love it. All right. So, <clears throat> podcastawards.com. Vote your conscience often. <laughs> vote your conscience and vote it often. <laughs> yes. Okay, Leo, the yes. Apple Watch. Yeah. So, my biggest puzzle. So, I, it was just this. I, I'm, I'm just loving being alive now because... This well to the degree that I am at the moment. Um, th- this is this is just a, such a fun time because I want to see what's going to happen. Yes, this is really this is it's bizarre and it's it's over the top and it's crazy. the 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 biggest well, many things stand out in my mind as being like okay, maybe um, one is. That the bands are such a large percentage of the watch price, it's like holy crap. Um, the the five the five forty nine watch, which is the one you know, like the the I, I call that the mama bear. It's not it's not papa bear. It's not baby bear. It's mama bear. The one you know in the middle, the five forty nine watch. The the final price can range up to ten forty nine. Depending upon what band you choose, what? Oh, it's worse the than that. If you look at the can gold be as watch, much as the watch. Yeah, if you look at oh more. If you look at the gold watch, 
The only difference between the $10,000 gold watch and the $17,000 gold watch is the band. Yes. And so you're telling me that a a leather band with a gold clasp is $7,000? I think that's not right. And selling you a $10,000 gold watch with the plastic band. It's like, come on. Nobody's going to buy that, and that's obviously the point. So Kevin Rose, who is, of course, you know Kevin, uh, former screensaver and dig founder, and uh, a watch fanatic. Kevin has in later life, Ah. I guess he's made enough money now that he can afford, like, fancy wristwatches. In fact, he's created a blog called Watchville. There's a Watchville app. And why not? Why you not? Know, He's I mean, rich and now. Ke- Kevin, yeah. <laughs> so this is his take on the Apple, the expensive Apple Watch. This is on TechCrunch. The gold Apple Watch is perfect for douchebags. <laughs> he points out, and I think he's absolutely right, that technologically there is no difference. The watch that you buy for three forty nine is exactly the same except for a gold case is the watch you buy for $17,000. Which is really interesting. Not like, it doesn't have like double the... The, 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 the RAM memory. or anything. The RAM or there's the a sapphire. The one difference is there's a... More expensive watches have a sapphire uh, yeah, screen. Um, so he says really... In fact, he quotes Anna Kendrick, the movie star. We should be thanking Apple for launching the $10,000 Apple Watch as the new gold standard in douchebag detection. Anybody who's wearing that watch, he says, is proving that they just have more money than brains. Or they're really, it's a very ostentatious way of showing off. Um, I'm excited okay, so, about, I like wearables. You know, I wear the Moto 360, the Android yep. wearable. Oh, I'm, I'm behind you buying one. So <laughs> I'm, glad, I, I'm glad for that. And Apple's done an interesting psychological thing. It's, t- it's technically called anchoring, where you, right. you start with a low price that, is is like the price everybody pays attention to three forty nine, but it's right. not the watch you want. You want the next one up always. No right? one wants the cheap one, right? So they've established they've done two things by setting the outer limits at three forty nine and seventeen thousand dollars. They've made you not feel so bad about spending the same amount for your watch as you'd spend for your iPhone six or seven hundred dollars. But so, honey, it's like. Less than my iPhone was. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and it's not $17,000. So yeah, anyway. You know, that lens of yours is even cheaper than the high-end <laughs> I know. watch. Now, the lens, I'm getting some for my, my money there, but the, the watch... Well, you... see, and that's just it. I'm, I'm actually not going to buy one, at least not the first one. I remember uh, you and I were, at this point in our relationship was when we were flying to to Vancouver. So we'd, we'd stop going to Toronto to do Call for Help, and we'd switched over, and we were going to Vancouver. During one of the days that I was doing shows with you, the, the controversy that day hit of the Apple, the new announcement of the next iPhone with the radically lower price. And there was a lot of conversation about that, that, well, you know, the people who were early adopters, they really wanted that iPhone at that high price. So, you know, yeah, they got an arrow in their back, but they got the phone that they wanted. And Apple, because you may remember, it was a a precipitous drop in price. Um, just bang. Now the iPhone costs this. And it was like, ooh. Although okay. I have to point out that if you got an iPhone 6 Plus, 
uh, and uh, I did and maxed it out. It's over a thousand dollars. Yes, yes. So yes. <laughs> it isn't exactly so, cheaper. It's so the, the most the, expensive the other, iPhone ever. The other thing about it that seems so conspicuous is somewhere in a meeting with a lot of these amazing, bright, creative people sitting around, someone said, you know, like Tim, he said, attention. He said, okay, we're going to do a watch. Mm. It'll do all of the expected iPhone extension things, but what more can we give it? What more could a watch do? And someone raised their hand and said, oh, doodles. It can do doodles. And it's like... Uh, okay, good. Write that down on the whiteboard. Anybody else? <laughs> I could send my heartbeat to to like anyone else. But, oh, oh, oh! Wait a minute. Write down on the doodles who has who also has a watch. So you know this stuff is interwatch stuff, not watch to phone. Um, and of course, this is also classic network externalities where Apple is creating features that require one at each end and it works because as you said on one of the shows lisa is now getting one yeah which she wasn't planning to before yeah so that you and she can doodle do exactly. intimate doodles to each other yeah which um you know so yes it works but it has this sense of straining for a reason to exist rather than you know the the classic you know if it's um, it, it, it's looking for a market rather than it fulfilling an obvious need. So, although again, for for somebody who is iPhone centric, who is messaging all the time, I mean, I'm not saying I won't ever get one, but it seems unwise to get the the, the one in the first year, and I don't need it enough that I, it's like I have to be an early adopter of this thing. Um, I, well, although it does sound fun. Ah. But, okay, but like with a really you. good band, 349 with a good band, it's going to be $800. Yeah, I'm going to get the steel with a Milanese loop band, I mean, which is really, the 650 band, I think, or six. The band, The band thing is a, it's, I don't get it. And they, like, I saw some marketing that said, Every single link is individually yeah, machined yeah. and hand-tuned and polished. That's the link we, we're only able to do two a nine day. Nine hours. They say it takes like, nine hours to mill. Right. <laughs> but that's – that's and Kevin uh, Rose's point is that people buy expensive wristwatches because of the craftsmanship involved. And I think that's an attempt – you see the the watch itself. There's no craftsmanship. It's stamped out by oh, uh, Chinese slave and, labor, and it's Apple's secret aluminum. It's the own their alloy. They show yeah. it glistening, going down the yeah, runway. Yeah, yeah, those movies we're, are. We're good. sprinkling in a little bit of magnesium and a little bit of zinc, and this is the best aluminum you've that's ever been. They're um, they're somebody's saying buy it without the band. I don't think you can buy it without the band. I think that you have to, or I guess you could buy the well, rubber you band. Buy it with, and then you, you can snap it, it off. The rubber band. The rubber I'm band. I'm sorry, That's fluoroelastomer. The they don't even want to say rubber. <laughs> but I believe fluoroelastomer is rubber. I could be wrong. Yeah, uh, it's, a rubber band. <laughs> it's a rubber band. Even, it's so funny because I think Christy Turlington, uh, when she came on stage, the, the model at the Apple event, wasn't briefed fully because she called it a rubber band. And I think 
<laughs> that was a whoopsie. Uh, woo. We don't call it that. Woo. It's floro elastomer, please. Now, no, Apple's, Apple. Apple's great at marketing. There is something here. I think one of the, th the clues to why there's drawings and heartbeats is the original Apple Watch was, it's according to the Wall Street Journal and a leak, uh, supposed to be much more of a health device. But they, for a variety of reasons, for technical reasons, battery reasons, and FDA reasons, they couldn't make it the health device they wanted to. So at that point, not so long ago, they were casting around for, oh, crap, it can't do that. What else could we have it do? Right. So it has an accelerometer and a heart rate sensor. Which they all basically. do. This does. Yeah. Um, and that's what you can yeah. easily do. My shoe does. <laughs> yeah. It's not a hard thing to do. Yeah. Your Nike uh, pod, fuel, whatever it is, yeah. Nike pod is doing that. So, um, but I do think that there is something about wearables. I finally, I figured out what it is, actually. One of the reasons I love Android is because of the widgets. I can turn on the screen and without diving into an app, instead of on the iPhone, you see yes. a, a grid of apps and you have to, you can't really get much information from the screen. You have Correct. to dive into the apps to get anything out of it. But on Android, I have widgets. These are all informational. There's calendars. There's there's news. There's weather without doing anything. And I realized and, and Apple's Windows never done that. Windows has that too, right? Yeah, Windows Phone has more information on the screen. Apple's never done right. that. Apple's effectively nope. a, a grid of icons. The yeah, watch well, is the widgets. Like the, time. Yes. the watch is the widgets. The other thing that became apparent that wasn't completely apparent originally is that you don't the watch does everything the phone does just on a little screen. So you can even be Dick Tracy and talk, have a phone call. So, uh, and because it supports Wi-Fi, your phone doesn't have to be within Bluetooth range. It just has yeah, to be on your that's network. Brilliant. That it's able to use Wi-Fi to bridge. So that's valuable iPhones. to me. I can leave my phone here and wander around valuable. the studio and valuable I have the everybody. phone. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some, now, they've, they've found some value in it. It's not that it's completely useless. If you if you were to lift your arm very slowly and kind of like trick it so that it didn't know you were lifting your arm, does it? Can you see the time? No. Or do you have to give it a like? You have to like do a Heil Hitler in order to get this thing to wake up. There and, is a low power mode that just shows the time, and I think it okay. goes into that if you get down to you know a small. I so think that display is always on or never. That on. one is always on, but only when it's only when it's running out of juice. Normally, it's much like the Android Wear watch, where you don't want to leave it always on. It'll kill the battery. It, but a gentle twist of the wrist turns it on. Mm. Or a tap of the screen. Yeah. They have to do that because the problem is these, things, these devices are so small, they can't hold much yeah, lithium-ion. Yeah. Where are you going to put it? Yeah, and the strap-on optional battery pack, you know, that goes on your forearm. <laughs> that's just really... <laughs> Not, that's so that's, I'm, I'm, it takes the bling out of the $10,000 yeah. watch. This is a problem with all portable devices, mobile devices, right? This, you can't get too small because you have no battery life. This We've got to get this back. What happened to supercapacitors? We've got to get this battery life thing solved. It'll be good. That would be perfect for this application because yeah. a supercapacitor could charge so fast right. that you just briefly mm -hmm. touch it to a dock. Right. And, you know, they could set them up next to electric car charging ports and things. So Supercapacitor doesn't give you more capacity. It's just faster to charge it. Do you get more capacity um, it, per square it, inch? It It is. It's Well, of course, it doesn't do anything today because they don't really exist in a practical fashion. Except but, my screwdriver. But, but the only if it could reach, yes, <laughs> if it could reach parity... With with chemical storage, electrochemical yeah. storage, then you get instant charging, which is great, which is right. super great. Right. Yeah, 
providing as long as voltage it in the charger. Like, <laughs> as long as it doesn't like blow up and fuse and turn into <laughs> a, a a microwave on your wrist. Yeah, you don't want to burn. You don't, you don't want a ten thousand dollar shaped spot on on your wrist when this thing goes nova. I get some value, not enough to make it a must-have out of my Android Wear watch. I anticipate a similar kind of reaction to the Apple Watch. Of course, I will buy one, and I'm not going to buy the Anchor watch because that's cheap. That's right. It's cheap. <laughs> so I'm going to buy the middle one like everybody else, uh, yeah. and uh, which is ridiculous. And I, 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 I could tell you this. If I didn't have this job, I certainly would not. But I'm also buying a MacBook. What do you think of the new MacBook? Oh, oh, yeah. I'm. It just. <laughs> you crack me up. It's Apple at their finest. I See, love there's a lot that, of people in the chat room say, "Oh no, this thing is a netbook on you know for a double the price." Because it's no. the Core M isn't a super fast processor, but you know what? Processors are pretty fast nowadays. That's right. Why are we turning and up our nose at 1.2 gigahertz? Really? I never liked that. Like. That 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 basically they fixed everything that annoyed me. Yeah. Um. I n I never liked that weird like front of the pad click down thing. That seemed wrong. Um. Yeah. This uh, is. I think the force touch is a great idea. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. It's thin. Um, it's light. Two pounds, which is really pretty light. Oh Lord. Are and you worried about one screen. connector though? The USB Type C. Um, it. Um, I, I'm, I guess I'm worried about one odd connector because I don't have any of those USB right. devices. Maybe we'll start getting them. Yeah, um, Google's but, already announced a new Pixel that uses two of them. Apple should have done two, by the way. Then yeah, so. it would be easy, you know? But uh, yeah, they only but, did one. But my point is that we'll, we will then need an outboard converter. Right. And I've always been a little annoyed by Apple. You know, like the, the, the main device sells at a good price but all of their little accessories really do seem you know jacked up profit margins uh for the the other thing that you need because oh you, what, your tv doesn't have a lightning connector well you're gonna have to get an, an well a, here's a the converter. good news type c is not proprietary is no longer proprietary right. Uh, right in fact that's kind of stunning i can't remember apple or most laptop manufacturers ever doing non-proprietary power connectors that's a profit center yeah so uh that, in my opinion, is is a good thing. And by the but, way, USB Type C, because I had to look this up, but can do can can not only does it power, but it can power up to a hundred watts. It's a you nice. can put a lot of power across watts. it. I know. I so don't think a, any laptop those, needs that. A, a lot of those pins must be uh, conveying power, and so you can use as many as, as you like. I think it's a, I think you're oh, right. Yeah. I think it's probably like that. If you're going to use it for video. You obviously aren't going to put 100 watts of power across it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll be, I'm, I'm really, really I'm, I think that because Apple will jumpstart USB Type-C, we're going to see, that, see it everywhere. It is a standard, and that is a good if, – if, if the one thing accomplished by the MacBook is that laptops, like phones, have a single standard adapter for their power – that's huge, and it, and well, at least the dongle you buy is going to be usable with other things. It's not just and it an also, Apple it dongle. Also me yes, it also means crazy video. If I mean through, a, that means that USB C is now fast enough. Yeah, there's two 10 do... gigabit channels on it. Oh, <laughs> 10 gigabits. Two. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's good. Nice. I'm excited. Yeah, um, for that alone. And what I I just love. 
I love gorgeous engineering. And the, the, the new MacBook Air is just, it is just sex. It is, it is the, you know, the idea that they, they say, okay, well, we want a wedgy sort of overall profile. So that means that, that we're going to have a wedgy sort of interior cavity size because the screen is going to be flat. But, you know, if we, ha- if we have a standard prismatic cell, as they're called, the, the lithium polymer cell, which can be any shape you want as long as it's square, um, then we're going to lose a lot of space. And in their video, they just show that so elegantly where at any thickness, this thing can't like come down to the down into the nose, in, in, into the front edge of the of the laptop because it's too thick. So Apple scallops their batteries in a series in a, in a series of multiple scallops. They figured out how to to come up with a layered battery that is ends up being one unit, but where as as it as it goes lower, these scallop sizes uh, pull back, and the the effect ends up being the equivalent of a wedge shaped battery that is then able to tuck itself all right down into the smallest interstices of this case, and and they uh, I don't remember what the number was, but it resulted in substantially better uh, o- overall power. Um, uh, delivery. Yeah. So I just that I just I and they took the existing uh, logic board that was already h- high density and said, okay, this is uh, three times bigger than we needed to be, or maybe it was four. Um, we're gonna cut this thing down to much smaller. And when you look at it, it's like, oh my god! I mean, so they designed it so that the components would nest into each other so the and of course the big change is no moving parts no blower any longer so they were also able to remove the fan completely so not only is it always silent but boy getting rid of that is a is a great achievement so oh it's i think that is i think currently it's the penultimate statement in in a a fully functional portable uh, laptop computer, but you you use the iPad for like you'll take the iPad to uh, Starbucks, right? I mean, oh my lord, yes. Yeah. So this is yeah. kind of midway between a MacBook Pro and, a, and an iPad. It's kind of you know, it's it's light, it's thin. Uh, by the way, but, not the has, lightest and oh, thinnest and, notebook out there, and, and the new design of the keyboard, so that the keys are not kind of r- rocky, tilty any longer. They came up uh, yeah. with what they called a a butterfly design, so that it they were able to get even um, less height, yet like a, a firmer feeling key, so that you can still type on it. And the and the <coughs> the keyboard also goes edge to edge on on the anyway. I don't. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't mean to sound like a Apple fanboy on this, but boy, I, you know. Well, those keys I, are I not going to have the travel of previous uh, laptop keyboards, yeah, so it, they can't. They There's can't. nowhere, There's nowhere for them to go. to go. So I'm. Yeah. Well, I've used like my Asus. Uh, I'm sorry, my Acer S7, which is equally thin. The keyboard was almost unusable at first because it had so little travel. Uh, I made a lot of mistakes on it. Um, they improved it in the second generation, the Haswell version. Um, so I'm curious. We'll see. Uh, you get you kind of got used to the S7, at but some at some point it becomes a, too much of a compromise. Right. 
Haptic. Right. I think haptic on the trackpad, though. Is, I can't wait to oh. see what that feels like. Yes. Uh, and Renee Ritchie, watch. who was there. The watch has it, too. And the watch has it, too. Uh, the, Renee Ritchie, who was there, and uh, Serenity Caldwell and Jason Snell all said it's kind of uncanny, even though the, the trackpad doesn't click anymore. Oh. Because of the haptics, it feels you, – you feel like there's a physical thing happening. It tricks you. Wow. And so I'm, I'm wow. curious about that. Yeah, but, and, then, and then, of course, the deep touch or power touch or, force or touch. power click or for, force touch, force right? Touch, which the, is actually a terrible now, name. I know. I thought the same it's thing not while, a good while, name. While, while Tim was saying it. I was thinking, well, how about, you know, something else? Yeah. You know, force implies for, that you're using force. And I, <laughs> I, I hope touch. it's not like I have to push down on that thing. Yeah. <laughs> more touch. Yeah, I, Slightly I will, more touch would be good. I, I think they've just done a great job. Well, they've they've so, obviously won you over. I presume you're going to order one immediately. <laughs> yeah, I, I I I I like my existing air, and uh, this one this one replaced it. It's just a as I said, it's just a work of art. Yeah, a work of engineering art. I'm going to get the gold one because I'm that douchebag. I have a gold <laughs> S. I mean, a, a, a gold uh, iPhone six plus. The gold, I, I, it's kind of it's not it's not like bright gold it's kind of a nice we, we know it's not real gold it's just painted on yeah it's gold so paint. it's like you know yeah yeah gold tone <laughs> um, they're not charging a hundred bucks more for the gold <laughs> oh my god or ten thousand <laughs> so um my only mention this week of spin was just it's from a tweet uh that came in on the 11th which was what is that yesterday that's in seven twenty-two in the morning um michael parker um tweeted at GRC, he said, or at SGGRC, hey, a decade of waiting to use Spinrite but never found a need. My day finally came. It saved my SSD, which, not, which would not boot. Thanks. Aww. So the further, further um, substantiation of what everyone is seeing which is Spinrite has a bright future because it moves right into solid-state mass storage uh, without skipping a beat. Um, so uh, thanks, Michael. For I, have, I did thank him uh, via, via the Twitter uh, for his note and for um, implicitly allowing me to share that with our listeners. Steve, get a cup of tea because we're going to get <laughs> into the meat of the matter in just uh, a little bit. Talk about freak. His free, super freaky. But before yeah, we do, okay. I want to uh, say hello to our friends at Carbonite, our great sponsor, Carbonite. We, we're a big fan, as you know, of Carbonite online backup. Um, for the hands-on business owner, now, <laughs> that's a nice euphemism for the business owner who does their own <laughs> IT, Carbonite makes data backup hands-free and hassle-free, and it is a great thing. Carbonite backs up all your digital assets to the cloud, and it means you are automatically, securely protected. More than a million and a half customers, including now 70,000 businesses, trust Carbonite for round-the-clock protection of their business files, their databases, their documents. You know, if you're in business and you lose your data, you lose your business, at least until you can get that backup restored. If you don't have a backup, you could lose your business forever. Please. Do me a favor, whether you're at home or at work, Carbonite.com. You'll get two bonus months free when you use the offer code SECURITYNOW at Carbonite.com for home or business. Carbonite.com. 
Use the offer code security now, two months free. You could try it for free. They've really done a great job. I just There's just no question in my mind this is a solution that every business should be using. And, uh, and I think many home users, given the number of people I get who call who say, I can't believe how many people still don't have backup. It just kind of blows me away. Please don't do that to yourself. Carbonite.com. It's affordable, flat rate, unlimited storage. Security now is the offer code. Try it today. Steve Gibson, you are a trooper. We thought you, we hoped you'd be better by now, but a cold is a seven-day affair, isn't it? We're going to get it done. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Uh, if Glad you're to be. If you're tuning in right now, we're going to about a half an hour before uh, TNT, and we're going to yep. we're going to get get the freak and the row hammer on right now. Okay, so this is bizarre, freak. Um, I got a lot of tweets from people when this when the news broke, saying, "Oh my God." Should I worry about this? What should I do? And the answer was, eh, um, it's an, a bizarre, it's a bizarre thing that was discovered in in today's contemporary, as of two weeks ago, SSL TLS secure network stack software, um, existing in um, in Apple's own. Uh, uh, SSL, their secure transport technology, and the most recent version of OpenSSL, um, actually before version 101K, um, are vulnerable. Uh, so, And the OpenSSL guys were given a heads up about it um, last month. Um, but it's not something that the end user has to worry about. Uh, and unfortunately, this was another one of those things where the, the popular press jumped on a sort of the true but technical aspect that that sounded really bad um what was discovered was a surprising cipher suite downgrade attack that would and this is what's shocking that would downgrade to a cipher suite that nobody even supported. It's like, what? <laughs> what? Um, well, there's a reason nobody supported it. Well, but, okay, so, <laughs> right? so I mean... let, so, well, but, but, but there, there, there's a subtlety there too. Um, when the way TLS works is that your client gives the server a list of cipher suites that it knows and then the server looks at its list and picks the one that is the best that 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 it considers best from its list that the client also supports and then it uses that to to establish the um the the cryptographic connection long long ago as you said leo the and this ties back to what I was talking about before. The export grade cipher suites were eliminated. So, and, and the way that actually feels is that, um, is that in a list of cipher suites, we've talked about GRC's list. Um, I think it's, uh, I have a bit.ly link, bit.ly slash GRC ciphers. And that gives you a text file of the list of cipher suites and 
And among those are RC4 at 40 bits. And it was like, you know, and, and 40 bits is the symmetric key length. And then there are, and, and with that comes um, RSA 512, which is 512-bit for the, the public key component of the cipher suite. Remember, remember that we both need a cipher suite, um, which is, and, and this is why it's called a suite, is it specifies a, a chain of, of different crypto. There's the, the, the specific public key negotiating side, the, the shared symmetric key technology and, and length, and then how they do message authentication. Um, and so a, a given one of these specifies those things. And I saw them a couple months ago there in the list of ciphers that, that Windows Server 2008 R2 that I'm using offers. And it's, they're like they were down at the very bottom of the list. And I only had, what, 2K of, of registry space to, to list mine. Um, so any sane person would never get down that far. But you'd also never choose that. You would never, like, say, oh, yeah, I want to, today in 2015, I want to support a 512-bit five, RSA. Now, we're still using... 1024, 1024-bit RSA, um, and moving to 2048. And, and it's important to remember that 512 um, is not half of 1024. It, it's half in terms of bit length, but it's, it's 2 to the 512, the, the, the 1024, RSA 1024, while only being twice as long, is two to the five twelve stronger? So it, that it's a radical jump from five twelve to ten twenty four, and we're making another similar, even more radical jump when we go to, to twenty forty eight. That's two to the ten twenty four stronger than uh, ten twenty four bit RSA. So, so what we're talking about is. A dawn of the internet, like the, the original Netscape browsers SSL, when the when strong crypto was still regarded as a munition, therefore, in this weird case, you could use it in the U.S. but not outside of the U.S. So, so browsers offered their list, their sort of a curated list of cipher suites that are strong. That they support. The server does the same thing. Here's what some researchers discovered completely out of the blue. Remember that cipher suites all come with a, a, a commonly um, recognized hex designator. That is, all of them, there is that long textual form, but there's also just a simple two-byte designator to say, sort of give it a a family and within the family um, designation and some some standards body, IETF or ICANN or somebody, probably IETF, have standardized on what these numbers are. What these researchers discovered, and they did this, they, they, they stumbled upon this because they were built, they wanted to experiment with building a, a very strong... <coughs> 
excuse me, a very strong fuzzer for SSL or NTLS. A fuzzer, of course, is the industry's term for just throwing all kinds of random stuff at at an API and see if you discover any surprising breakage, something that it's not supposed to do. And here's what they found. If a man in the middle intercepted the client's opening handshake to the server, and that opening handshake is going to contain a, a, a range of cipher suites that we would all think in this day and age are strong. Even Chrome, for example, we know Google is, is will be the last place on earth that anyone that any browser is going to send a weak cipher suite. Um, so the man in the middle intercepts that, removes them all, and puts in that designator for export grade crypto from the dark ages and forwards it on to the server, the server, 37.6% of the servers on the internet okay. will go, yeah, sure. oh. Huh. You're stupid, okay, but I'll be well, stupid. Okay. Shoot, if that's all we can do, then I guess so. Wow. I mean, there there is a cipher suite that is no cipher. There's like a no, I think it's zero. Um, and fortunately, I think they don't respond to that. But but the... the this 36.7% or 37.6, something like that, more than a third, said, oh, okay. And so the server then responds to the client and the client who never even offered that cipher suite but, is, but sees that the server has decided to use this export grade cipher says, hmm, well, I have that. So, okay. So... This 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 begets so many questions. Um, first of all, why are these even in any OS to, at all? There's absolutely no reason for it. You know, the null cipher is gone. Um, kill this one too. And so what? Ha- but the point is that no one did. Um, OpenSSL was vulnerable. OpenSSL. Um, you might argue that because it has such a wide range of applications and many of them are like, you know, it's the development and testing platform for TLS, they're going to keep them all around. Okay, so maybe allow them to be installed or allow there to be some sort of special access to these really, really brain-dead ciphers. But don't advertise a secure set and then accept one that you never advertised. So that was the that was what they found. They found both that a shocking number. I mean, even Apple's secure transport was vulnerable to this. A, a shocking number of existing systems. Oh, and and um, IE. That's what IE. That that's what Microsoft fixed on March 9th, Was they removed this <clears throat> characteristic from Internet Explorer. It, too, was vulnerable to this. So, so not only were these absolutely no longer, can we even consider this to be secure <clears throat> cipher um, from the OS, um, but it's still there. 
it also turns out that you could just use one of these that was not advertised and both ends would say, oh, oh I didn't really think you were going to come back with that one, but okay, fine. And so that's freak. Um, the, the response, as you can imagine, has been swift, uh, as swift as possible. Um, uh, Apple's fixed it. Microsoft's fixed it. OpenSSL has had it for a while. Um, Akamai, uh, the, the, uh, I had in my notes here the number of, okay, so who had vulnerable servers? 36.7% of the 14 million sites serving browser-trusted certs, meaning that in a scan on port 443, you don't know for sure that you're, you're probing a, a website, because you're not you're not scanning by domain name, you're scanning by IP address. So you're just you're just covering the entire internet. But when it returns a cert that browsers trust, it's a very good bet that this is a, a, a web server. So that was their selection criteria. So the internet had 14 million sites serving browser trusted certs, and of those, 36.7 percent were vulnerable. At this, uh, but many of those turns out to be uh, uh, Akamai uh, Content Delivery Network, CDN endpoints. So that skewed the numbers a little bit. And Akamai is busy. Uh, they're they're going to be doing like a major retrofit in order to, to bring their whole network up. Um, but so there were some embarrassments in here too. The U.S. government sites such as www dot nsa dot gov was vulnerable to this www dot white house dot gov and and irs dot gov and the the fbi tips site tips dot fbi dot gov all vulnerable and the the Facebook.net site is connect.facebook.net. That's the, the domain name that serves the ubiquitous across the Internet like buttons from Facebook. It was vulnerable. And an attack, a man-in-the-middle attack on that could have uh, had huge consequences for the security of like buttons everywhere. So this thing was... It was pervasive in the show notes. If anyone's interested, I have a, a complete list of the vulnerable TLS client libraries and the um, the web browsers. Um, uh, well, in fact, uh, so so Chrome versions before forty one on various platforms were vulnerable. Uh, so I just said that Chrome wouldn't be advertising insecure cipher suites, but even Chrome left them in there for, like, no explicable reason. Um, Internet Explorer on OS versions before March 9th are vulnerable. Safari on OS versions before March 9th are vulnerable. Opera versions before 28, which I'm sure is recent, are vulnerable. Android browser is vulnerable. Switch to Chrome 41. And, you know, that we, we discussed before how, unfortunately, Google, for just practical reasons, is unable to go back in time and service the millions of late, of, of very earlier version Android browsers, they're always going to be vulnerable. The good news is the sites they are probably going to be connecting to will not be vulnerable, and you need this vulnerability on each end. Um, so 
So, so essentially, this won't affect Android users, even of early browsers, because there'll be nobody vulnerable for them to connect to. Um, and the, Black, the BlackBerry b- b- browser is vulnerable, um, and we're still waiting for a patch for that. I'm sure BlackBerry, because they're a going concern, will fix it. Sort of um, a going concern. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, at least, you know, still in, interested in, in not in having business, any yeah, overt yeah. security flaws right. in their No, in, their in fact, products. that's a big part of their product pitch, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, really interesting discovery. You, you, it's like something that was, has been lurking in our TLS libraries from the beginning uh, that w- we just didn't see. Did you check if uh, ClintonEmail.com was uh, vulnerable? <laughs> I had that thought, actually. Um, I didn't see that Windows Server was ever vulnerable. And uh, ClintonEmail.com was using Windows Server 2008 R2 yes, and, um, as, as its OS platform. Although they didn't get secure certificates for the first three months of her term as Secretary of State. so Wow. Yeah, that's just come out. So, But it is secure now <laughs> if you'd like to use it. <laughs> well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Our final Row topic is Hammer. Row Hammer. Like this Exploiting name. DRAM. D- Exploiting DRAM. So this began with a team of researchers at Carnegie Mellon University, which I in the past have referred to as Carnegie Mellon, but, you know, we don't do that anymore. Carnegie <laughs> Mellon. Um, really? Carnegie Mellon? I, I, I said Carnegie Mellon once, and it's like, okay, what? That's the Irish, the Irish version. It's in Dublin. Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> it has sort of a more of a rhythm to it. Yeah, it does. It's nice. Actually, I want to start a university called Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. I like it. Um, so these researchers did the groundbreaking research, and in the show notes is a link to a 12-page PDF um, that is really interesting, has a lot more details than I'm going to go into because I'm going to go into plenty as it is. Um, They discovered a way of affecting, of deliberately affecting bits in RAM that were not otherwise under their control. That is, when a process is in an an operating system, you know, it has RAM that's been allocated to it by the OS. And um, so, but, but part of the containment that the OS provides uh, through the, the page table mechanism is this inter-process isolation. That is, a, a process sees RAM, and it might, might even sees, see the same address ranges of RAM as some other process. But the the page table mechanism in contemporary CPUs, pretty much all of them that, that support virtual memory, virtual memory is the, the, is the name for this, is such that when the process generates a, a fetch of any kind or a, uh, or, or a write, that address is mapped through several layers of indirection. So basically what looks like a, a, an actual memory address is actually a pointer to a slot in a table that that the processor uses to map that to a physical RAM address, and this becomes important in a minute because um, because of the work that the the um, the Code Zero guys at Google followed up this initial groundbreaking research with. So, 
what these guys at Carnegie Mellon discovered was that was that they could perturb bits in RAM in adjacent rows, thus the term row hammer. We've talked about DRAM before. Um, DRAM is the the only um, technology which has steadfastly resisted the the normal performance increase curve that everything else has gone through. It's it's it used to be about the same speed of the processor, but the processors just went crazy, and the speed of RAM while increasing really lagged behind. At the same time, the density of, of DRAM has increased um, so that we've got, got an incredible amount of DRAM now on a small set of chips that would have was you know never possible once upon a time. The Intel, the first DRAM was, I think, the 1103. Maybe it was 1102. I don't, it was 110 something. And I think and it was like the classic DRAM. It was 1K bits. And so that was addressable as 10 bits. So that would be five bits for row and five bits for column. Um, so that's a 32 by 32 array of, of bits, which is all we could do back then. And everyone thought, oh, my God, that's, you know, we don't have any. So thanks very much, Intel. Now we have gigabits. We have that by dramatically shrinking the, the cell size of DRAM. And... Uh, DRAM is essentially capacitors, um, which can be charged up to a certain level. And just through the nature of how small they have become, they tend to discharge by themselves. So the idea with DRAM, the, it's, it's really nice that we've got this, like, this incredibly low component count cell. But because it, it isn't very static... It's necessary to come back around and read it before it has had a chance to discharge into the uncertain region where we're not sure if it was ever a one or it was always a zero. So thus DRAM must be refreshed. And it's typically refreshed every 64 milliseconds. What these guys discovered is that if they could arrange to hammer the adjacent row in DRAM a a huge number of times in between refresh cycles, they could flip some bits. And they didn't do the work of exploiting it, but to their credit, the Code Zero team did. The Google's Code Zero team picked up this, um, this potential problem and basically weaponized it. Um, they have two proof of concepts now. One was a, a, an attack on their own um, native client technology in Chrome. Native client is the very Im- impressive but kind of scary idea of running native x86 code in the browser. Rather than JavaScript, you run actual machine language Thus giving your browser 
the same performance on a browser-based application as a native application on the on the computer would have. To pull this off, they do all kinds of voodoo, among which is they break the instructions into 32-byte blocks and analyze them in those pieces and make sure that no skewed analysis could create a, a privileged instruction. So what they do is they, they only permit a subset of x86 instructions um, that are safe to run in this sort of this scary sandbox that they create. But it turns out that if you were to flip a bit in one of these 32 blocks of machine code, you could turn what was previously scanned and checked out as being safe into being unsafe. And so they created an exploit that actually managed to break out of their own um, native client sandbox. And it was the guy that was the, the, the project lead on this. He'd, he had been the developer and the, the, the previous cracker of the Chrome sandbox. So he chose that as his first target. The second, the, the second proof of concept exploit they, they pulled off was against um, a 64-bit Linux system. And what's scary is it is shockingly powerful and we don't have a solution for it. The good news is it's because Linux broadcasts a processor's page table um, called the page map that the processor can see how its physical memory is mapped into its logical memory. That's, that, that, that's sort of the, it, it's necessary for this particular exploit. So, for example, I'm not aware of any way for a non-driver in Windows to access that mapping between virtual and physical memory. Uh, but Linux makes it simple. It's slash proc slash um, uh, uh, PIE slash page map, and it gives, and, and it, gives it to you. So uh, by using a short loop in machine language, they were able to flip a bit in their own page table, which gave them global access to the system's memory. They were able to basically to take control of their own process page table from the OS, giving them complete global access um, to the system's RAM. Um, I, I, this is, I mean, just an amazing work of engineering. Um, what I did want to share uh, just in closing is that they created a GitHub site where they have a self-test for Linux users. Um, and I've got it in the show notes. It's, it's in GitHub slash Google slash Rowhammer hyphen test. And um, in Google's testing, half of the 30 laptops they tested, they were able to exploit. Um, and in the Carnegie Mellon um, uh research, almost all of the DRAMs, they, they had 129, I think it was, different DRAM modules from three major manufacturers. They were able to compromise 111 out of the 129. And they noted that the problems seemed to be recent. It was new models of DRAM that was having the problems as opposed to old. So it's looking like the cell size has recently shrunk in order to bring up the density to such a point that 
that we're seeing the the integrity of DRAM damaged to a point that it's now exploitable. So that's Rohammer. I'll probably have a few more words about it next week. Um, but I wanted to let everybody know uh, what it was and what, what was going on with it. Thank you, as always. You're the best, even on a day when you're feeling not so hot. <laughs> and uh, thank you for making that effort. Hey, one uh, note I just wanted to pass on. Uh, this came in as we were uh, talking, and uh, I know many of our uh, viewers are science fiction fans. Uh, uh -oh. Terry Pratchett, who uh, is a oh. wonderful, wonderful author. He created the Discworld uh, series. They're really comedy fantasy novels, but just brilliant. He's passed away. He uh, he uh, was suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. He called it the embuggerance and uh, actually continued to write with uh, some effort. Uh, his last novel came out last year. And, and also to reread what he'd just written. <laughs> now, come on. <laughs> oh, <okay>. sorry. <laughs> but you're right. Uh, he was. He certainly joked about it, uh, but it's very sad because he was only 66. He was one of the, oh, uh, I think, one of the wow. great minds, one of the great writers. If you have not, this is an opportunity, if you've not read the Discworld uh, series to, uh, to, to, to read some of it. Um, but uh, very sad, uh, Sir Terry Pratchett uh, passed away. Uh, at the age of 66, and uh, this would be a good time to break out those Discworld books. There's something like 70 of them. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Um, All off by him or part yeah. of a... Did it, yeah. Wow. The last one, he had, a, he had some sort of device he was putting on his head to kind of help him, because it was hard to write, of course, towards the end. Um, but he managed to come out with uh, one last one last summer, and uh, I, I haven't read it. Actually... But. The, the problem was probably that he wrote 70 of those novels, and it damaged him. I don't know. I don't know. It's very sad. He has suffered from um, uh, a uh, early – I mean, 66 is very young to uh, pass away from Alzheimer's. He con contracted yeah. it, uh, um, I think, seven years ago. So he was in his late wow. 50s when he contracted it. So uh, for those of us in our late 50s, uh, that seems too young. Um, anyway, a, gr a great loss. Uh, but read with his read with his uh, his stuff because it's just a great. And there's all, it's all on Audible if you want to listen. Um, I just love it. Steve Gibson is with us still, despite a cold. He is not, <laughs> in fact, uh, just incapacitated. As you can see, his mind works under all circumstances. You can find him. The show at G must go on. I, uh, it's amazing that after, and we've been doing it for 10 years, that this is the first time you've missed an episode. And you didn't miss yep. it, but first time nope. we delayed an episode due to illness. So thank you for uh, coming in early. So uh, Q&A next week. Next week, Q&A. So go to grc.com slash feedback to leave your questions or tweet him because he, uh, he we often take tweets in the questions yep. at SGGRC. You'll also find SpinWrite at grc.com, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, and lots of freebies and uh, 16 kilobit uh, audio versions of this show, which sound kind of like they were recorded by <laughs> Thomas Edison in his lab, but they're small. Yep. Smallest version, though, is the text version. Elaine Ferris does a great text transcription of each and every episode. Those are all at grc.com. We have high-quality audio and video versions at our site, twit.tv slash sn, and wherever podcasts are found. And I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss an episode. This is one of those shows, almost 500 in now, where you, yep. you really... 498. Two more, baby. 
And, uh, you know, Twitch just did its 500th Sunday. So yeah. th- this whole network is starting to show signs of aging. <laughs> <laughs> but we soldier on. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, my friend. Talk to you next week. Security.